Hello, everyone. This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Uh, I'm in day... Whoa, this is day 30? Day 30 of my uh, self-imposed quarantine. Um, and <laughs> I don't know what it is for you. You're all going through it. We're all going through this together. Um, yesterday on the... Uh, podcast I asked I had asked you for your ideas and help as to what we can do both about the virus that's attacking many of our fellow citizens and the other viruses the larger greater viruses that are um, things we have to deal with in terms of the person in the White House and the system that we have been essentially forced to go along with live within follow its rules keep our mouth shut that's all going to change these ideas that you've been sending me and, I, and after I played yesterday's podcast it was clear that you um, wanted to send more ideas I think some of you heard the other people's ideas and I got a whole ton more of voicemails um, yesterday, um, and today, and so, and also more, more letters, more emails, um, more postings, and so I, I thought I'd take an, an extra day uh, to include some of the new ones. So that, so part two of um, of your feedback in terms of what we need to be doing, especially we as Americans, um, that will occur in tomorrow's podcast. So uh, today, and I believe I, if you're like me, you don't even know what day this is. I think it's allegedly Wednesday. Uh, so I have a I have a special um, podcast that I had recorded just before the pandemic uh, really kicked into full gear in March, and um, I've been holding it because I've just looking for the right moment and I think this is the moment within us sort of envisioning and imagining what will life be like post-pandemic what are the things that we could be doing need to be doing what fresh ideas sometimes the sometimes it's an old idea that we've forgotten about is actually the new fresh idea that's going to help make our lives better make this country this planet better and so I, I, I recorded this podcast for I did not know it at the time for this special moment. So uh, for those of you tuning in to hear part two of the feedback from my listeners, that will be tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, but today, Wednesday, uh, uh, which which is day 30 of my imprisonment. Um, shouldn't use that word, actually, because sadly there are real people in real prisons uh, today uh, that should not be there, especially during this crisis. Um, so, uh, but I guess I use that word because it's kind of what we all sort of feel. But a lot of these ideas that have been coming in have given me uh, some hope and some other ideas, some new ideas of what maybe we all could be doing. And the idea I had today, so part two will be tomorrow. The idea I had today is to run this podcast because I invite, I told you at the beginning when we started this uh, back uh, just before Christmas 
um, that I wanted to bring voices onto Rumble that are not necessarily heard in the mainstream media, but there are so many good, intelligent, brilliant thinkers, people out there um, who are trying to help us find a better way. And and we I just don't get we don't get to hear them. Uh, one such voice is the one I'm bringing you today. Her name is Jane McAlevey. And um, you generally will not find her uh, talking to Anderson Cooper uh, or, uh, I mean, pick any, any of the shows. Uh, she will not be on Morning Joe, uh, although I, I think they would love her. If they, if they like Anand and if they like Eddie, uh, they would love her. Um, but we don't, hear, we don't hear people like Jane from Jane. On, on, but it's not just her. I mean, it's been this way for our whole lives, hasn't it? Where's, how come we never see Noam Chomsky on any show? Has he ever been on a Sunday morning show? Have they ever asked one of the great thinkers on the left to come in and participate in a discussion? Maybe the problem is that people like Jane and Noam and others uh, don't really speak in sound bites. Um, but it's it's rare. We sometimes get to hear from Naomi Klein, um, you know, a few others, but we don't need a long time to list the people um, who are our brilliant left thinkers, people who are trying to come up with a plan, with a path forward to have the things we should be having right now in our lifetime. And we're all thinking about this now, and that's why I asked you to send me your ideas and I've just been overloaded with all, everything that you people who will listen to this have been sending me. Because clearly, um, in addition to all the other things we're trying to do while we're just stuck at home, people are thinking about when this is over. When we hear the pundits talk on TV about going back to normal. I'll tell you what I've been feeling. i got a feeling that you have been thinking the same thing, some of you. I don't want to go back to normal. I didn't like normal. Normal wasn't such a good deal for a lot of people. And if we are able to hit the reset button now in this once in a century moment, let's do it. That's why I want you to hear from Jane McAlevey today. Somebody that the others, it's not that they don't want you to hear from her. It's just that they don't know how, they just don't know how she fits into the whole discourse because it isn't about the discourse. It's just about repeating the same old tired tropes and cliches. And we don't get anywhere, do we? Jane McAlevey is not about that. She's about getting us somewhere. She's about us winning. She has spent her life uh, since she was a, a teenager straight out of growing up in Rockland County where her dad, I believe, was the, he was the chief, the county executive, as they call it here out east. It's like the mayor of the county. 
And he was a very progressive lefty Democrat. And she grew up in that kind of house and uh, went off to a, the state college, the SUNY State University of New York College in Buffalo. And right away started causing trouble at 18 years old. You'll hear all about that in the podcast. And, and we talk a lot about um, the need for organizing. The need to organize the people of the people where we came from working class people who make up the bulk of this country and have very little say. Jane McAlevey, uh, she is one of our most important organizers, labor organizer. She's an author. She's a scholar. She is currently a, a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley in their uh, labor center. They have a labor center there. They have an institute for labor and employment relations. Um, she's an author. Her new book is called A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. One of the things that we can do right now while we're going through this despair, the fear of getting sick, possibly dying, of losing loved ones, the, um, the largest death day so far was yesterday in this country. Every day, they seem to say that, because it, it still seems to be going up. You'll hear about plateaus and all that, and I want to believe that we're going to turn this around, because you and I and everybody else have been very good about not exposing ourselves to others, not passing it around, staying home, washing hands. But of course, the stay-at-home thing, we got to do Let's we'll do an episode on that. It's such a kind of a white privilege thing. Black people and Hispanic people who are staying at home, they're just, they're, let's just say a lot of them are being paid to stay at home. All right. And as we've now seen on the news, as they're finally reporting it, uh, it started because very few states are keeping track of the race of people who are dying. But Michigan has been doing that. And once those statistics were revealed a couple of days ago, Michigan, 14% of the state is black. 40% of those dying are black. Other uh, cities and states started to do it. And it's, it's Louisiana. Oh. Chicago, 30% black, the city. 70% of the deaths, black. And I love these, these, these newscasters. Why is that? When you have a system set up with built-in income inequality, much of it predicated on the skin color of our fellow Americans. It's no surprise that people of color end up getting the worst care, half-ass care, or no care. So as we're thinking our way through this, as we're suffering and struggling right now, we must leave some space in our brains for how we come out of this and what we do when we come out of it. And what I want you to think about today as you listen to Jane and myself in this conversation, think about what it would be like if truly we, the people, started controlling things. We, the people, started rethinking what work should be. Our work life. 
who the boss should be, who controls the money in a democracy, who should control the money. And Jane's history and her whole, what she's done since she was a teenager, her kick-ass attitude, I just thought this might be a slightly inspiring thing to listen to today. And um, so, recorded about a month ago, about four weeks ago, uh, just before most people went into lockdown. Um, Jay McAlevey sat here with me in my Rumble podcast studio. And I bring that conversation to you now. And I will um, see you again tomorrow with part two of your ideas about what we should be doing. So um, let's just jump right into it with Jane. You went to a SUNY school? Yeah, but I dropped out of the first year. Whoa, that was, that's me. <laughs> yeah. You can't take my story. Really? No. One year I dropped out. No, I did. I, dro- I dropped yeah. out the first day of my sophomore year. Oh. I, 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 I yeah. actually went back after a year of it, and it was University of Michigan Flint branch, so it was a commuter campus, so you had yeah. to drive there, Yeah. and they had no parking, and I drove around for an hour looking for a parking space. Yeah. Literally, this is exactly what happened. And after yeah. an hour, I just said, fuck it, fuck I'm it. dropping out. <laughs> yeah. And I drove, and I was still living with my parents, you know, I'm 18, yeah. 19 years old. Yeah. And I, um, which was really late to still be at home, by the way, back then. <laughs> Unlike now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I say, am I walking away? I told my parents, I, I said, I, I just dropped out of college. What? You know, nobody had ever been to college. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. either yeah. family before. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, to a, like a four-year college. Been right. Like trade school. Right. Why? Couldn't find a parking space. <laughs> That's not a reason. It is for me. Yeah. And that was the end of that. That was it. That was it. But uh, why'd you drop out? So I started 16. So I was like young to begin with. And then the-, the Okay, the, you were the, the Doogie like, Hauser of, of the, your college? Is the that second, the, 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 like, the, like, the like second week I got to campus, Mario Cuomo is elected. He's in his first term, right? The, yeah. the smarter one, but still a neoliberal. He was one of the few people who- this this actually really real. He's one of the few people who ever intimidated me, like when I was going up against him. Yeah. So I, was, I became a student leader and just dropped out. Yeah. Um, so he he proposed the single largest tuition increase, right? SUNY had only had, SUNY and CUNY, so the public university, which is all we could afford in our family for sure. Right. Um, and I went there because I was like a working class kid at 16 and definitely had no money. So I get up there and like my second week on campus, he's just been elected governor, season is maybe his second year. Mm-hmm. And he, so it's early 80s. And he proposes... A massive tuition increase. And I'm like, wait an effing minute. Like, you're the Democrat, and I'm this working class kid from a family where, same thing, like, my, that we're the first generation. I mean, my father went in on the GI Bill after World War II, after yeah. fighting the fascists. But, like, yeah. there wasn't a big culture of education still in our family. So I get up to SUNY, and he tries to impose this huge tuition increase, and I immediately see a flyer to get on a bus to go to Albany to protest. And I'm mm. like, definitely getting on that bus. Right. So I got on the bus, and by the time the bus came back, they were like, you're in charge of the next action. You know what I mean? Because I was just like, we had five hours from Buffalo to Albany, so there was like a lot to do. So I walked around, met everybody. My old man's a left-wing politician. So like, I got on the bus, I'm like saying hello to everyone. It's like, I just got to school. I want who are the pe- who organized the bus. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, and I'm like, we get back from the action. It's a good action. But I'm like, we're going to have to do way more than that. We have to do direct action on campus. We have to like, mm. we have to stop this tuition increase. Mm. And the first lesson of me dealing with unions that were frustrating to me back then, we're talking about a union, strong union house, union house with politics in it. But 
the unions are coaching us that day. You guys can't really go after Mario Cuomo. You know, you got to be really nice to him mm. because he's a good guy. Yeah. And we're like, no, he's proposed a 600, back then, yeah. a $600 a semester tuition increase when our tuition was oh like God. $500. Was, yeah, it was, was like huge. double, more than doubling yeah. our tuition. Yeah, yeah. See, this is where it started. What, what, roughly what year is this? 82. Okay. So, so this is where it really, really starts. Young people who are listening, Zoomers, millennials. <laughs> uh, if you were in college before yeah. 82, you went to college essentially for free or near free. Right. Uh, like you said, five, right. was it $500 a semester? It was like five, yeah, it was like yeah. a few hundred bucks yeah. a semester. But for, I still had to figure out how to live, right? So I was waiting tables. Like I didn't, so I was already waiting tables. And where were you going, going to, to SUNY, uh, SUNY Buffalo? SUNY Buffalo, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I still had to pay to live, right? So right. when they said we're going to more than double your tuition, and he's the big Democrat who got elected. And my old man was a Democratic Party politician my whole life who was left to the, you know, to the left side of the party. So he already had a mm. thing with Mario. They already mm. had a, so I was predisposed to fight him anyway, because they'd already disagreed on some right, politics in New York. Right, because mayor of a town or something. Mayor, like and then like the equivalent of like county executive, supervisor, county exec in Rockland, and did actually really uh. good work. Like he was a good, you know, he was on every picket line. He, I mean, he did right. really, he did the stuff that you expect a Democrat, I grew up expecting Democratic Party politicians to behave the way my old man did. So here's one example. During the drum strike, I think it was, in 67. No, I don't have any recollection of that when I was a baby. Explain. We're not talking about a marching band of drums. <laughs> Explain the drum strike. No, I'm talking about the black movement inside of the United Auto Workers. Yes. So there was a huge... So we lived across um, New York, but the Mawa plant is right across the border. Mm-hmm. So Mawa, New Jersey, mm-hmm. when I'm growing up, still has a mm-hmm. massive Ford yes. plant in it. Mm-hmm. And so even though my father was governing the county next door, many of those workers lived, they right, lived in his yeah. political district yeah. and drove over the border in Jersey to get to the Mawa plant. So I spent a lot of time on those picket lines as a little girl getting the picture taken, whatever, with the old man. So meanwhile, for example, he put all the ones who lived in New York, I forget the mechanism he used, but on the second day when the auto, remember they did it this year too when GM did it, when they said, we're going to take your health care away to try and get them off the picket lines. And yeah, my father they announced- They did take it away. Yeah, and my father yeah. announced- so this is 67, 68. There were two, s- several rounds of strikes. And he announced in the newspaper that everyone who lived in his district, he was putting on the county payroll. And the quote in the newspaper was, you could hold out against that son of a bitch company. And somehow he gave them health care through the county. It was like, wow. that's, that's, that's what someone who supports a strike used to do when unions were strong and politicians who were elected and believed in the trade union movement, right? right? right so right. I grew up in a house of like, that's what I came to expect from Democrats. And then I go off to college I'm still broke. I get, you know, my mother died. He went bankrupt, whatever. It was complicated. So I get off to college. Right. I'm waiting tables. And Mario Cuomo proposes to more than double our tuition in my first year. Wow. A that Democrat. Democrat. Yeah, bastard. So that was it, right? No, I was I like, loved yeah. I mean, he yeah. was smart. So then yeah. I, I got elected to the state student union mm. as the president. And that's when I dropped out the next year. So they elected me. I moved to Albany. We had a state student union, it was called, for all 26 campuses in SUNY. Wow. People and SUNY. People paid dues. That? It was already organized. I just got elected because of the role mm. I played in the Stop the Tuition campaign. And we beat them. Like, we stopped the tuition increase that Were year. you ever arrested? Oh, many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, sp- I spent... Um, yeah, then we... And during the divestment campaign, which was two years after the tuition increase... Mm, anti-apartheid. Anti-apartheid, yeah. yeah. So an anti-apartheid fight. Um, so now I'm the student trustee. and Like, I'm the formal student trustee because yeah. I'm the head of the state student union. Yeah. And our state student union was strong enough that we changed our rules so that to manipulate it so that the little trustee, they set up a separate system for how a student trustee got elected. 
we changed the bylaws of the state student union and essentially made it so we took over this fake student association that the chancellor set up to get a different student leader to be the trustee. But like I'm elected by 26 campuses at that point, right? So we manipulate the bylaws. So I become the official student trustee. So I'm introducing the resolution, right, to divest the State University of New York. It's 83, I want to say, or 84. Um, and we'd be, the, people, the leaders before me had been introducing it for a couple of years at that point. Um, so we thought, screw it, we got, we got up the ante here, right? It's time to go. Like, we got to win. So um, I, so because I had an access pass Just to the state. The, yeah, let's get to the point. How to did the you state university headquarters. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, we already got arrested once, but this was going to be we were up in the ante. So mm-hmm. we wanted to pile a ton of people in, take over the, we had done a strategic analysis of the building. So you were able building. to open a door that you had no yeah. right to open. So with I a pass, a chain, you had no right to. So yeah, I came mm-hmm. in with a ton of chain link around me. I wore this mm-hmm. peasant dress mm-hmm. and I had a ton of chain link that was like, mm-hmm. m- never get through metal detector, but I, I made it in with my pass went up to the building, introduced the resolution for like the third time to divest the State University of New York from South Africa. Um, And they said, they rejected it. And Mm. I said, okay. And I walked out, left my stuff there, made it look like I was going to the bathroom, walked out of the headquarters where the trustees were meeting, went downstairs to the back door, slammed the door open, like a couple hundred of us got into the finance office and then bolted it closed with Mm. the locks I had brought. Wow. That led to an occupation that went on for 17 hours because they wow. all the press were there. They couldn't figure out how to get the kids out of the finance office. We were yeah. just, we were opening the finance stuff, sending it to the ANC, to the African National mm-hmm. Congress. Mm-hmm. We were sending it out to the media. We were handing all the financial reports about the investments out the window to the media. Right. I went to jail for 15 days after that action, which um, we did not what? expect. How yeah, many I days? got, yeah, so they, everyone else was just getting off little parking ticket kids, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they sent, they gave me, the judge gave us, so a bunch of us went to trial. We're like, no. We brought the ANC in. We had the ANC, mm. United Nations folks come up and mm. testify. I mean, we made a Every show National trial. African National Congress. African mm-hmm. National yeah. Congress. So we used it as an organizing opportunity. We staged a huge trial. The ACLU took our case. So I'm like this young, blonde-haired student leader, you know, who they got in jail, whatever. So then- Wait a minute. They held you for, let me, 15 days in jail? So, 15, so we lose the case, and the judge says, the judge is not sympathetic, and the yeah. judge says- um, you can either go to jail for 15 days or you can sign a waiver here saying you will not get arrested again. And I said, that's against my constitutional rights. Oh, I don't yeah. believe it. Yeah. So you can send my ass to jail, not thinking they were going to do it. Yeah. And they sent me to jail yeah, for 15 days. Wow. And at that exact moment, by the way, for the Hells Angels, protesting. for protesting. Yeah. And the Hells Angels, what weird thing happens is it's Albany County Penitentiary. It should have been an easy thing. Yeah. But that day... The Hells Angels, the largest drug bust in the history of the Hells Angels happened, and mm. all the women from the Hells Angels were thrown into the same jail. So they federalized it, made, made it a maximum security rules, and I was getting checked and locked. It was like locked down mm. for 15 days, except the New York Times and the AP were coming every day because the student leader who shouldn't be in jail is like in jail in their view. Right. So it was the beginning of learning a lot of life lessons about how to work the media, mm-hmm. how to work a court case. And how to win, because we wa- when I walked out of jail, I walked back into the trustee headquarters. Bill Moyer's wife, Judith Moyers, was on the board of trustees. Mm-hmm. She became a flip vote with me because she had not voted with us the first time, mm-hmm. believing the Sullivan principles or something, that if we kept our money in South Africa, capitalists could fix the problem. So mm-hmm. I walked out of jail. Sullivan was this uh, uh, black, uh, somewhat conservative board member of General Motors. That's right. Their token at General Motors. That's right. Yeah. 
And the whole theory of the so Sullivan principles that, was, yes, right. yeah, let's keep the money invested in South Africa because then capitalists can influence it and we can yeah. have more influence that way. Yeah. And I'm like, it, you know, I'm a Capital- that point capitalism. Of, that was his theory. Capitalism would uh, destroy apartheid. That's right. And uh, that's boy, right. God, can we, we still listen to this crap? This th- crap. These days. Exactly. And we're in 2020 here. Exactly. And uh, in the belief that, well, anyways, we'll get to that in a second. But so, so how, many of the, how many of the 15 days did you serve? I served not. I got out on good time, so I served nine days. Nine days and fifteen. How, how much did you learn from the Hell's Angels women? A lot. G- give me By one, the way, one they protected th- me. Oh, they all loved it. Like yeah. I was, I was yeah. a little dolly to them. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the whole, yeah. well, all the women in the prison adopted yeah. me. Yeah. I went in. I was reading Angela Davis. I was reading all yeah. books by Black women of color from America. It was like my dedicated thing. Mm. And I go out for the very first time. Uh, the first, we're being let out for one hour a day. I'm slightly terrified, to be honest. But I'm kind of toughy. So, you know, I'm in there for good cause. The guards were not happy with me because of all the media attention that was coming in. So there's a little resentment with the guards. So I go out for the one hour a day and they're playing volleyball. Now, the good thing is- they are. Did you get your exercise? Are you good at volleyball? I'm good at volleyball. So I walk out having an attitude and a couple of them come up to me right away. They're like, oh, you're the cute girl protesting apartheid. Come Mm -hmm. on over. Mm -hmm. Mm, and oh I played volleyball, and I was in. I was in, and it was actually super interesting. The whole experience. Okay. How many of them were reading Angela Davis by the time you left? Uh, the, I left the, all the books when I left. You did well. That, that, I just created a little library. They definitely read it. So I created a little library there how when many, I left. How many tats did you walk out with? None. 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 Oh, so so no. it wasn't a quick pro quo. No, you got them reading Angela Davis, yeah. but you refused to do yeah. any of the tats. Yeah. Okay. It was pretty. It was pretty amazing. And then we won. Like. The media pressure was so intense. So yeah. that became, that was, in the whole history of the campus-based anti-apartheid movement, that single action is still the single largest act of divestment that happened during the anti-apartheid movement because the State University of New York investments were massive. Massive, right. And right. then they tried to throw me off the board and said it was a conflict of interest and a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, but we won, and it was huge. And an early lesson for you in terms of how to organize for sure. Uh-huh. How to organize, how to win, strategic, like tactical use of jail time, of court time, of media time, yeah. and really of huge collective action because it, yeah. it had been a multi-thousand person student action. It was just a hundred and I think 12 of us who got arrested, who took the building. And so you have used these early lessons um, for the past 30 some years uh, to organize, to agitate, to educate. And to uh, win. And to win, right? As I mentioned earlier, you're, you're, yes, and winning is very important. Winning is very important. That's I'm under, pretty obsessed that's with underrated. winning. I'm pretty obsessed with winning. Like no. if I'm obsessed about one thing, that's why Alex, that's why people are reading that shit because it's about how to win. No, I know, no, believe me. I, I, it's it's uh, one of my biggest problems with people on the liberal side of things is they forget about the winning part. They think that as long as symbolically we were cool. No. Um, no, it doesn't. No, because at the end, at the end, and I know this, I mean, I, my uh, uncle was in the Great Flint sit-down strike of 1936-37, which essentially led to the UAW. That's right. Existing. That's right. Having their first contract, first time they brought down a, a major industrial corporation in this country. And, um, it was a beautiful thing. You know, it was. If, if you have never heard about the, the sit-down strike in Flint. Amazing. Uh, uh, go read about it. There's a, there's a couple of good movies. It's actually a, a, a great movie. I think, it, I think it won the Oscar. Uh, called with babies and banners uh, about the women's emergency brigade brigade in Flint, Michigan, uh, during the strike, uh, and essentially all these Flint women wearing red berets and carrying around clubs and baseball bats 
to beat back the police, the Pinkertons, uh, oh, yeah. and, and the others. So it's, it's quite a yeah, a it's extraordinary story. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. It's, it's an amazing story. Um, so my uncle was in that. So this has you know been in my family now for for some time. Um, but um, let, let me uh, let me start with this. Okay. I understand why most people their main job this year is to get rid of Donald Trump, but some of us have decided to take on two jobs. That's right. Job one: That's get right. rid of Donald Trump. Job two, get rid of that which gave us Donald Trump. Damn right. Because he didn't fall out of the which sky. Which is a bunch of neoliberals from the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, well. Joe Biden's part of it. Um, Yeah. Okay, don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, my position, and in the, end, in, the, in the end of the book, in the new book, in Collective Bargain, I say in the last chapter, I sort of sum up the beginning of my time as a full-time trade union organizer, and then I come in um, when Clinton and Blair... Uh, are ushering in sort of a, a new kind of, like what they call new labor, right? Uh, which means no labor, by the way. I mean, no labor as in no unions. So I, I start the last chapter by talking about hitting the trade union movement as a young trade union organizer full-time under the Clinton regime in the 90s and watching first the NAFTA debate go down. And there, you know, global, my view, and this gets right back to Biden and why Bernie matters, um, and what I say in the end of the book, which is, let me just say what I say. First thing I say is <laughs> uh, globalization was nothing more than straight union busting. We didn't get democracy in China. We didn't get democracy. In, we didn't get, we were promoting democracy, my ass. Globalization had one objective, which was to de-unionize the quote unquote West, which they did a pretty good job of, which is why right now in Germany and the work I'm doing with the unions in Germany, they got the same problem happened. just happened a little bit slower than happened here, right? Those jobs are going. Forget the myth of the works councils, the German model. Maybe we'll come back to that. It's a bunch of bullshit. Workers don't know how to go on strike and defend themselves. They're in trouble, right? So at the end of the book, I say that. And I also say what we cannot do going up against Trump in 2020 is afford to have a corporate Democrat as the candidate. Because if we do, we're repeating 2016. And one thing you and I share, by the way, besides politics and a set of values about unions and working people and the state of misery in this country, we were both some of the only people who publicly somewhere actually predicted Trump was going to win. And I did that with some nation reporters on the convention because I was running a huge union organizing campaign in Philadelphia in 2016 where we helped seven hospitals. We won seven NLRB elections. That's National Labor Relations Board elections from the ground up. Right? People say you can't do that. It's bullshit. You can do it. So if you're doing good organizing work, you can win. It takes... It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of doing things correctly. It takes bringing the community in. It takes building a power structure to beat the bosses. But, like, we can still do it. So I was part of a seven-hospital organizing campaign. We just kept winning, one hospital after the next, bottom-up campaigns in Philadelphia in 2016. So I'm on the doors with a team of organizers and 7,000 registered nurses in and around Philadelphia. And we're literally in the exact demographic that the Clinton data wizards are telling us is how they're going to win Pennsylvania, which is um, the, the Hillary blacks, Clinton. the Hillary yeah. Clinton people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, black. So here's, here's their theory. I go to them at one point to say, do you understand that we, we have 7,000 mostly women, black nurses who live in the side of Philadelphia and then white nurses who go out to the suburbs? We're the exact demographic that you're targeting, that you're telling people is your theory of the win in Pennsylvania. You got to get a overvote. You got to hold the same black vote in Philadelphia that Obama held, and you're going to be fine. You got to pick up some white people in the suburbs, white women. Literally, this is what the, the mm-hmm. campaign data wizards say. Right. 
if we hold the turnout level among black voters in Philadelphia and we pick up just a few extra white women, that's their demographic mm. analyst, mm. around Philadelphia, we've got Pennsylvania. And at this point, she's 17 points in the lead officially, like in the polling. It's June. Mm-hmm. I've just come back from helping lead a campaign in where? England, where I was there for the Brexit vote. I come back to Philadelphia. I'm back in the campaign. I had committed to do a week-long training with some unions in the UK. So I'm back in Philly. I've experienced the Brexit vote because I was in England watching people freak out when the vote Mm -hmm. went down. And I went to a debrief with a bunch of the unions and listened to how many of their members voted for Brexit. And I came home and I wrote an article back then for Alternate saying, heads up, uh, Trump's going to win. And um, people laughed at me, called me stupid. I called the campaign headquarters of the Clinton people in Pennsylvania, and I said, we're, we're with 7,000 women of your exact demographic, and not a one of them is interested in talking about Hillary Clinton. You got a major problem in the city. And if this is your theory of the victory, you're losing Pennsylvania. So then I wrote an article about it. Mm. Then I did an interview with someone at The Nation magazine during the convention and said, she's going to lose. And they made fun of me, which mm-hmm. led to a very long interview after the election where they made up for me for making fun of me, saying she's 17 points in the lead. I'm like, I'm a union organizer and I can read mm-hmm. people and she's going to lose the goddamn election mm-hmm. unless something really different happens. Yeah. So at the end of the book, I say this, the new book, I say what I lived through in 2016 in the key demographic that the Democratic Party corporate elite believed was their strategy. And it wasn't a strategy and it didn't work, obviously. And if we let Biden become the candidate, I am deadly fearful that we are having a repeat of 2016 because people are not going to be motivated for this guy. It's not that they're not, they're not going to go out and vote for Trump. That was bullshit anyway. A lot of workers didn't do that. They just stayed home. That's what happened in 2016. They didn't go out and pull the lever for him. I always say, stop blaming the working class. You blame your own damn selves or the rich people and and the white middle class and all that. You put the man in, not the working class. They just sat home, some of them, because it was such a depressing concept to elect a candidate implicated in globalization and closing down their factories and moving their jobs offshore. And in the case of Biden, where we have the most beautiful energy in the country right now in the trade union movement, it's been a lot of the education strikes, right, that I've been working with teachers unions and a lot of the big education strikes. Who, who's fingered? Who, who's fingered? Who is literally partly to blame for the destruction of public education from 2008 to 2016? And who was complicit in helping destroy teachers unions? Joe Biden. So now you've what got do you a, mean, What do you mean by that? Because he was part of the Obama-Biden eight-year term where they had Arne Duncan as their education secretary, who set out to advance charter schools, privatization, and a super serious neoliberal agenda. Let's break that word down for a minute, right? But like a neoliberal agenda being, they waged a war, the Obama and Biden team. They just did. I know people don't like to talk about this, but you got to be honest about what they did. And Arne Duncan was the architect in, in most shortcuts. So I go deep into who Arne Duncan was in the years leading up to what led to the takeover of the Chicago Teachers Union by good teachers who finally won and took it over in 2010, fighting Arne Duncan, who then gets elected, who then gets pulled into DC to become the education secretary, Mm -hmm. right? He is like, enemy number one of every teacher in this country. And that's who Joe Biden is associated with. That He was the vice president under the administration of Arne Duncan. So the teachers unions are on fire right now. I mean, that's the locals, right? That's why the Los Angeles teachers came out and endorsed Bernie last November. 
the Oakland teachers just endorsed him, the Richmond teachers. I mean, teachers unions at the local level are on fire like, hell no, we're not going to take the guy who was responsible for having Arne Duncan in the White House. Because Arne Duncan literally promoted the privatization and the and the end yeah. of brick and mortar schools yeah. and and facilitated a war on teachers unions <clears throat> and blamed teachers unions not the Koch brothers not austerity not rich people taking their taxes out of public schools like all the things that the democratic party is complicit in in terms of tearing down the public education system and tearing down the last largest segment of unionized people in this country, which is America's teachers. That's the single largest segment of organized workers in this country are the two teachers unions in this country. That's literally the largest number of, of unionized people. Who's the number one contributor to the Bernie Sanders campaign? Do you know? No. Teachers. Is that right? Yes, I was, God. I was going to say nurses. It's amazing. Yeah, no, teachers. Teachers, teachers make, So yeah. you, look at, you look at the contributions. If you analyze the contributions, this mm. grassroots swell of support, mm. yeah, yeah. the number one donor Average to the Sanders donation, campaign. $18. The, number, the biggest single source of mm. individuals yeah. are teachers all across America supporting Sanders. So look at the energy. Look at the Sunrise Kids. Look at where all the energy is in this campaign. It's right. around Bernie Sanders. Right. You put up a Biden and the air is coming out of that bubble. People are just going to be like... Well, there's no movement there. I also was in the UK in June of, of, 16, of 16. That's how we both knew. So we saw Brexit That's happening. Right. That's right. And we saw how they were pulling it off. And I came back and, and during the convention, I was on Bill Maher and I said, That's um, right. you know, I'm, I hate to say this, but Trump's going to win. That's right. And he's going to win. And I, I named the states. I said, he's going to win Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And um, um, I got booed. Uh, people did not want to hear this. Yeah, but look, I've lived my life making these films and doing the things I do. And I don't care. You know, p- later I know five years, 10 years now, somebody will come up to you on the street and say, I wish I'd listened to you. And I'm That's like, right. fine. But, you know, so it makes it so hard in the moment where you're trying to explain to people how this is going to go down and how much we risk, risk having four more years of Trump. And we can't. With, with Biden. We can't. What, like we what, can't risk it right now. How climate, is it, no, climate change, as I, as I see the future, um, no matter what happens, we have a Supreme Court that's on, that's just locked down conservative and getting worse. We got a federal judiciary that's getting worse. I think that people in this country don't, I mean, now they see that Roe v. Wade's about to be overturned, probably. I mean, so my or good job, but still, like, this is an ideological court, and, and our, our side is in the minority, and they're going to start overturning every damn thing. I think that the next place they're going to go with trade unions, by the way, is overturning collective bargaining. They're Absolutely. Gonna, they're, they're literally going to do Wisconsin yeah. on the whole country. Yeah. They have a, you can see the argument in Janus, if you listened, which I did and read the transcript of right. the of the February 2018 hearing on Janus, it was very clear to those of us who are trying to pay attention to the power structure and do some power structure analysis, those mofos are going to overturn collective bargaining. So there's really serious stuff coming from the Supreme Court, not just a woman's right to choose. Far worse stuff is coming. As bad as you can get is coming. So that's just real. So if you go back to 1932 and the moment we were in in 32 in terms of income inequality, rising populist right around the world, like th- we are in the early 1930s. So 1932 um, is when Roosevelt first won. Exactly. So Roosevelt wins. And I say in the history chapter in the new book, just I walk people back through history and I say, you know, 
in all, I mean, with I have enormous respect for the sit-down strikes in 36, but part of what I outline in the book is the strikes that mattered actually even more were the strikes in 33 and 34, because oh, they led yeah. to the passage That's right. of the National Labor Relations Act. So That's I walk right. people through history, and I say... If you're a trade unionist like me, a young woman, I come into the movement, my history of strikes, they begin, it begin, yeah, sleeping car porter, something things, 1800s, nights of labor, but the, you, re, you really go to the auto workers, Flint, Detroit, and 36, and the sit-down strikes, which, by the way, we should know that history. I mean, but that's, yeah. I'm a trade unionist, and when I started digging into the history a little bit more, I thought, son of a bitch, it was not like FDR won, and he and Francis Perkins like, hey, why don't we just no, give no, workers no, no, all no. these rights? No. We struck the crap out of MUI, meaning the trade union movement, and workers right. went on militant and massive strikes in 33 and 34, and they were bloody and intense, and they created the pressure to yeah. force the change that right. got us Fair Labor Standards Act, um, Social Security, uh, the National Labor Relations Act, and a hell of a long list of things that banning, the New Deal got us. Labor, That's right. Eight hour day. Strikes. Yeah, strikes. strikes it. That's right. That were militant and, let me and just illegal. Say this. And failed. Yes. Failed. They didn't we get never, unions. We never talk about the things That's right. that, that fail. But I always talk about- But they won in the big way. From 1932 to 1934, the um, how these they tried it then, the sit-down strikes or whatever in Flint, and were crushed. They were crushed. And people thought, oh, that's, that's the that's end right. of that. Um, but, but there are so many historical examples of when you stand up, and yes, you may initially be crushed- Ultimately, what has always happened? Ultimately, you know, women get the vote. This is like, I mean, we're in the hundredth year of that this That's year. Right. That's right. The women of 1848 at Seneca Falls, who had their first women's convention to, to start the movement. Uh, I think there's, I, I was just reading this. There was only one woman alive who was a teenager at that convention that actually got to see and, vo- and vote in yeah. 1920. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. That's so they, they all did that knowing that they probably weren't going to make this happen in their lifetime. Right. They were going to get turned back, That's turned right. down, That's voted right. down over and over. Finally, some of them uh, in the late 1800s just started showing up on election day to vote and they were arrested because it was illegal. It was a crime yeah. if you were a woman yeah. and tried to vote. That's right. So, so we don't teach this part of the history very That's much right. as to what it takes to get there. But it takes to force the pressure. So was that so? When and, so I was, and so, what happens is, if yeah. I could just add this. Go the so the legislators who passed those laws from in thirty three, thirty four, thirty five that you were just describing, they did it out of fear. That's they right. They saw the uprising starting. That's right. Thank God the uprising was crushed. Now you know what we better do. We better throw a bone or two to fix some of the more egregious things, like you know, 10 year olds in the factory. That's right. We better and fix- little girls burning down in fires. Yes. Yeah. We better fix that. Yeah. Um, and if we do that, that might be just enough to kind of calm them down. That's right. And so, so this is how it works. That is how it works. And, and it's still how it works. It's still how it works. So here's what I learned. What are my we very, do? What are we so it's do? 1997. I'm getting my first training in a union organizing campaign. My second day on the job, I go to work for the right I don't know how it happens, but I work. I'm, I'm, I'm embedded with one of the best unions in the country still, which is 1199 New England. Yeah, they're the they're the they're the they're still today. They're 1199 still, is part of uh, now. Um, it's part of SEIU. It's part of yes, but, but it's it, but it's always been independent it's inside been independent, of the union. Yeah, yeah, right. And even yeah, there's a less long story, but let me just say the the training I received as a young trading organizer. Now I already had organizing skills, right? I had been running political campaigns. I've been 
arrested in jail, won a bunch of stuff as a student organizer, won a bunch of campaign. I went down and worked at a place called the Highlander Center in the South to learn about popular yeah. history. And that was this, the Congress of Industrial Organizations' original labor education school. People think of Highlander as the school where Rosa Parks and King and the Civil Rights Movement got their training, which is yeah. all true. But before that, it was the Congress of Industrial Organizations Labor Education School. So I go down That's there. That's the age. CIO of the AFL CIO. Correct. Thank you. So I go down there. That's okay. I'm I'm the millennial whisperer. I go down there. On the show. <laughs> I go down there as a as a 22 year old to get recruited to work at the Highlander Center to do what? To create a radical education program about globalization and the downfalls of globalization. This is pre-NAFTA, right? So I'm 22. I get recruited to move down there because at this is Highlander- after you were in jail with the uh, Hells Angels. Uh, <laughs> so right. well, I went to Nicaragua in between, learned Spanish, came back. Oh, don't ever run for president. Don't uh, say no. Nicaragua. But no, by the way. Nicaragua. By the way, Nicaragua. I hate when the white people can say that, try and I pronounce know, one word. But anyway, so that's why I don't do it on purpose. But anyway, but I, um, no, I wanted to go learn Spanish. And I also thought it'd be good to check out the revolution. And frankly, I had told my old man, right? So go back to him for a second. Left-leaning and smart Democratic Party politician. He always wanted me to run for office. And I said to him, nah, and to guarantee I'm not going to run for office, I'm going to go hang out with the Sandinistas. So I did. So that was like a strategy to stop myself from ever getting the inclination to run for office. And I'm not kidding. I wanted to be able to build the power to put bad ones out of office and put good ones in. So that's that's the obsession about winning, right? So I go down there. I meet John Gaventa, who then is the head of the Highlander Center. This guy, Miles Horton and Paolo Freire, you're writing a couple books, but they're old about popular radical education. And I actually think it was it, it was a tremendous gift for when I went into the trade union movement because I'd spent several years in the South really focused on, one, the impact of deindustrialization and what globalization meant as the plants were closing in the South. Two, watching that if we didn't do the political education well with rank-and-file workers, I got recruited because Highlander folks started hearing Good, good workers in the South say things like the Mexicans, Mexicans are taking our jobs. So they hire me to create an education program so that largely white and black workers in the American South begin to understand who's really to blame for their jobs going south mm-hmm. of the border because it ain't the Mexican workers. That's for damn sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm 22 and I create a bilingual program to bring maquiladora workers, Mexican workers up from the factories and we start touring the South with Mexican workers who are talking about the conditions. And then I start putting delegations together through the Highlander Center to bring factory workers from the South to the Maquiladoras. And we start this radical education program, and suddenly thousands of American workers in the, in the South are saying, wait a minute, it's not the Mexican workers stealing our jobs. It's goddamn corporations in this country who are actually ripping us all off, right? Which is, we were trying to build a global workers' movement, which is still part of the work as I see it. I've never seen the building of a new militant trade union movement as just a domestic question it's not and it can't be right so but let's just let's go let's go back to let's go back to 2021 and 2022 and 2023 and 2024 the difference you mean the future yeah and i mean what's the plan because we got a plan i mean in progressive labor movement we got a plan so it's like it looks like this one the difference is that the sense of urgency which is always strong right i mean every day there's misery and someone dying an opioid crisis to me is a sense of urgency but the climate crisis is making the sense of urgency even different right now. So I think the only way that we're going to be able to deal with a power structure that is so lopsidedly against most of us right now is when workers do a hell of a lot more of what we started doing in 2018, which is walking off the job in very large numbers in strikes that are both legal and, frankly, illegal. And in order to build what I outline, frankly, in all of my books, but especially 
the new one, I outline a couple of things. One, exactly what it takes to build a strike-ready union. Like literally my life work since I've run strikes is about what is the work behind the scenes? What's real organizing work? How do you take a potential Trump voter? How do you take someone who's confused about who's to blame for the crisis in their lives? That's what I was doing at 22 in, in the South with Makiladora workers, right? Same, same challenge my whole life. How do I meet? The thing I love about union organizing is the boss hires the members, right? The potential members. Like when we walk in to do union work, I got, let's say I got a thousand nurses in a hospital and they share no political vision. They share no political value. They, they're there because the boss hired them because they need a job. And suddenly if you call and say we want to form a union and then the boss hires the union buster, who by the way, we got a union buster in the White House right now. Same strategy, racism, sexism, anti-immigrant sentiment, division. So every single unionization campaign I've ever had the pleasure of running is like a mini fight with Trump because they hire professional union busters to come in and start with racism and sexism, and they start sowing division among people. And the job of a union organizer is to figure out how do you actually build deep solidarity among no less than 90% of the people? Because you can't win. You just, in this country, in my lifetime, with the union avoidance industry, we can't win a hard union fight until we build 90% unity across every kind of worker in there. So the skill set to take a potential Trump voter and get them into a room to realize not only are they not against the union, they're actually for the union, and help them understand, even though the union busters are saying um, unions are bad for all these reasons, our skill set is about literally building human solidarity. It's, it's the construction of solidarity. That's what real organizing is. And it's hard as hell, and it's also the most satisfying, beautiful work on planet Earth, in my opinion. So we're going to have to do a hell of a lot more of that to get to 90% and off strikes to make it look like it's 1933 and 1934 in this country in 2021 and 2022 and 2023, regardless of who wins. What do you, what do you say a young person's listening to this right now and they're working at Home Depot, they're working at Starbucks, um, what can they do and where can they go to learn what they, what, how to not get fired, hopefully, yeah. um, but to organize their workplace? And this is down a very small level. This is just what like... They, not a big global thing now we're talking about. We're talking about organizing the Starbucks on the corner of 80th and Broadway. Yeah. Um, you know, how is that going to happen? What can they, if they're listening to us right now, where can they go? What can they do uh, to help build this? I don't even want to say this revolution. Right? They're only thinking about themselves and what they're trying to, how they're trying to get through the day at that Home Depot or that Starbucks. So, I want to start by saying a couple of things. One is Home Depot and Starbucks are actually pretty different for a strategic reason. So as an organizer who's helped uh, hundreds of thousands of workers at this point win either hard strikes or unionization elections at a time when it's hard to do, I, I want to go back to the 33 period again for a minute because it matters. In the 1930s in this country, the left organizers inside the trade union movement, which is who I identify with and who my organizing tradition comes from, it's a CIO origin to the, to, to the training I got. They were not trying to organize the equivalent of every Starbucks in 1933, by the way. They just weren't. And we, right. need to, we need to deal with this. They had strategic industries they were going after. Right. They targeted steel, auto, coal. Those were three, to name three, that yeah. were, and maritime and a few others. But they went after, yeah. they looked at a strategic map of the country and the world, by the way. And they said, there are core strategic industries 
And part of what makes me batshit crazy right now in this country is that when I raise that we have to have core strategic industries right now to win, I talk about today's core strategic industries, and here's what they are. They're education. They're healthcare. Healthcare is a growing field. So the first thing I say to people is, if you want to change the world, you need to get out of the Starbucks job and you need to get into a healthcare job. There's a lot of them that you just need a certification for. Not even. You can go work in the basement of a hospital and get a job in the dietary unit, right? We call the dietary unit, right? Because we're all broken in these units. But like the first thing I say to young people who want to change the world right now, because where they're going to get training and where they're going to have the chance to actually experience unionization is if they shift into one of the strategic industries. Now, let me just say one that is one, which is Amazon. So the logistics sector is another key strategic industry right now. So we got education, we got healthcare, and I'm so happy to say this because I just met a nurse at a book talk I was doing in California who literally stood up at the book talk and said, Jane, I became a nurse after listening to you at a book talk in 2016, and I quit my job and became a nurse, and now we're unionizing our hospital, and it made me want to cry. So there are people Mm. listening to this shit. She wanted to change the world, and she literally quit her job, got a two-year nursing degree, is in hospital right now and it's organizing because i gotta say some people um who are listening to this what you just suggested they do uh it's how we do it quit their starbucks job quit their home depot job and get get into a sector where we can organize that right there to most people just feels like what but it's not it's not right my job i know i know sorry but if you want to change the world this is what we got to do people and we got to have a strategy and we got to move so okay so you're basic you're in the the zone of uh, we got to win i'm not kidding right the plan is burning down so we have a strategy like um so there are strategic industries just like they were in the 30s so people got to go into them they actually got to move into them that's what i've been doing my whole life is like helping people in strategic industries where it's harder to fire them where the job is not going to be offshored but i want to go to amazon for a minute because part of what i say in the book too and i go at some length in this I, i go back to historical records in the first in the opening chapter of the new book which I call 12 Years of Freedom, almost, in parentheses, I put almost, is the period, I, st- I studied the period from, 30 f- from, from when FDR is elected, then the passage of 1935, the National Relations Act, until Taft-Hartley, which is the law that begins to repeal lab- you know, workers' rights in this country. So I say there's tw- there was essentially 12 years of worker freedom, mm. real worker freedom. Until Roosevelt died. You know, in parentheses, almost, because there were <laughs> issues with black people, there were issues with the farm work. You know, they, they left out the nanny. You know, they made it so that some black people mainly agricultural labor and domestic labor were excluded from that act. Okay, but many black people in the Great Migration left the South, went to Detroit, went to Michigan, went to Pennsylvania, and and were incredibly important in the unionization of the big factories. So uh, millions of black people experienced and helped lead radical change in this country and create the American dream in that 12 years. So we gotta be real about that too. But meanwhile, if you were serious about organizing in the 1930s as many of us are today, you got to pick a strategic industry and you got to take a job in it and you got to get in it. Now, Amazon, I outline in historical documents in the opening chapter, the conditions in the average auto plant. And I write them in detail. I take historical records where like sociologists were going in and studying the work environment and the plants. Yeah. And I say, I write, like I take a bunch of quotes from these reports and I say the conditions in 1933 in America's auto plants were no different than today's Amazon plants. The conditions were shit. The workers were considered precarious. They were laid off, fired, kicked out, hired, brought back, laid off. We had no back, no security for them. And it took, it took 
a lot of workers sacrificing in a lot of rounds of strikes in 33 and 34 that we didn't win to actually force the unionization of those auto plants. And so people need to go into Amazon and have the same damn fight because there is no magic solution to how we're going to fix Jeff Bezos and the billionaire class, but pick strategic industries Take jobs in them. And by the way, don't just like go in there and be like, hey, union, and think that Sally Fields holds up a sign. That's how we do it because we don't. So then you got to start Will getting Sally some serious Fields training. Will be there though anyways, <laughs> even without the sign? Can we at It'd least- so good. Can we promise Cardi B? <laughs> Can, so, can we just say somebody will be there? It helps. It would be so I'm good. Just it, it helps. would be good. Okay. It would be good. Well, you'll be there. Yeah, I will be there. Okay. But, but right? I, yeah, but I don't. Can we commit right now if a bunch of kids from the 80th Street Starbucks go work at Amazon or go into the education sector, or the healthcare sector, you'll show up for their picket okay, line? I'm, yes, I'm not quite Cardi B, but I will do my. <laughs> I'll do my best to be myself. Yes, That'd of course. Awesome. I've, I've always been there. I mean, yeah, I, I, of course you have. I, um, I, I yeah. made a little movie about when I was on a book tour, uh, organizing uh, Borders bookstore workers yeah. uh, across the the country. Yeah, but um, yeah, but so this is real though. People, people need to get like I feel like one thing that makes me crazy about. Um, uh, progressives and sort of liberal left, whatever that cat, the left of center, is that when you try and have a conversation about, hey, you got to make some goddamn decisions and set some priorities because we can't do everything. In the 1933 and 34, they were not organizing the buggy whip factory. You know what I mean? That was not the strategic priority. They right. were not organizing little mom and pop places. They were going into big facilities. Right. And they were taking jobs and they were digging in right. and they were getting some skill and they were getting it done. And when they had walking people walking off the job and creating many general strikes in Seattle, in Oakland, in Minneapolis, like all over this country that forced, forced the major legal changes that happened in the 1930s in this right. country. And we got to do it again. And we got to do that, whether that's Sanders, frankly, like an FDR moment. And if it's Trump, <laughs> we really got to do it. Because we're going to have no damn choice. And what I'm encouraged by is that more workers have gone on strike in the last two years than have in the last 34 years. My entire adult life in the labor movement, we've had more workers on strike in the last two years than we have for my entire life in this trade union movement. And wow. I am damn encouraged by it. There are workers taking illegal strikes from West Virginia to Arizona to write 75,000 walked off in Arizona. That was illegal. West Virginia strike. Teachers get together with the bus drivers and the cooks. It was key that the bus drivers went with the teachers. The teachers alone would have had an injunction against them. It took us. It took the solidarity of the bus drivers saying, "We ain't picking the kids up." That closed down the schools. That thirty-four thousand right. people walking off the job closed schools down. That wasn't just the teachers. That was the. I and I write in the book that the most important part of that strike. Sorry, teachers. I love you all. Was the bus drivers because I interviewed a bunch of the superintendents in West Virginia during the strike. Yeah who said, I was calling into them, cold calling, this is cute, you can cold call a superintendent during a strike in a state like West Virginia and say you're a journalist, and they answer the phone, which wouldn't happen in New York or California, right? But they pick up the phone, and I said, oh, sorry, I'm doing a story about the strike. I'm just wondering, why isn't there a legal injunction yet against the teachers? Because there was in their the strike before that in 1990, and literally the first one said to me, okay, you can't use my name, I'm going to tell you the real truth. He was totally sympathetic. And he said, teachers have told me which ones to call, and he said, um, because state law says that our, the first job of the superintendents, this is about strategy, I'm going back to strategy, the, the, the superintendents have to guarantee the safety of each child. And so as long as the bus drivers, the superintendent said, I call the bus drivers union every morning and I say, are you guys coming to work today? And if the bus drivers said to me, no, then I just canceled school. Right. Because we can't let kids stand on the side of the road and get run over by a car right. waiting for a school bus. That's strategy. Yeah. 
That's so we true. need a lot of strategy. And what I hear is a lot of mamby-pamby horizontalist bullshit by leftists today who like don't don't know how to think about power structure analysis and strategy. And I spend a lot of time writing these books right now because I'm trying to teach power structure analysis mm-hmm. and strategy. I was the strategy down, flows from it. I was down there in West Virginia during around the, the time of the strike uh, there in um, in uh, eighteen or nineteen. Um, and uh, let me tell people who are listening to this the payoff for the teachers um, because the bus drivers. Um, would not drive the buses, which then effectively shut down the schools. That's it. The administration uh, decided in the school, the state education uh, commissioner and all this, uh, they had to end the strike. So they offer the teachers a fairly good package, uh, you know, not as good as they wanted, but better than halfway. That's right. And the teachers wouldn't take it unless they made... Unless the schools made the bus drivers and the cafeteria workers part of the same deal. That's right. That's called human solidarity. That's right. Yes, because the teachers, they could have taken their nice little package and run. That's right. But they know. They know what the bus drivers did for them. They understood it. That's right. And they also built it. Like when they took the, so this is really important too, because the whole strike was illegal. So when 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 the teachers took, when the teachers were the rank and file teachers were forcing the strike essentially on the position holders inside the unions. I call them the position holders, the ones who held the positions. The rank and file teachers start forcing the question of the strike. And one of the things that they did, the brilliant things they did, again, this is about strategy, is that when the teachers, the the official position holders in, in the two teachers unions said, well, we're going to run a teacher's only strike vote. And the teachers said, no, we're not. We're going to run a strike vote across every school and we're going to do one big strike vote. And we're going to have the cafeteria workers yeah. and the bus drivers put the put their ballots, and we're going to run a school by school geographic strike vote. So the first wedge for solidarity began with the rank and file teachers saying no. And when I interviewed the head of the bus drivers union at the time, he said, "You know, in 1990 they told us that we weren't even allowed to go on strike. So this was about rank and file workers reading books, learning history, doing their homework, and setting a high bar on human solidarity, and that." brothers and sisters, is the lesson of what's going to have to happen in this country. Right. And uh, for me, it's like I'm trying to figure out which states, which markets, and which sectors, trying to make a map of the country like we were doing in in the 1930s. And, you know, some of us are. Like, where do we have to go, when, under what conditions, and who's going to have to do it? Because there... It, even under a Sanders administration, the difference is he's going to understand what people are doing, as FDR did. Just like, by the way, Lyndon B. Johnson did. The tapes when you listen to Martin Luther King talking to LBJ about how do we how do we pass the key civil rights legislation in 64 and 65, we know that because we had it on tape, which we don't have from the 30s. But we have tapes mm. of Martin Luther King mm. talking to Lyndon B. Johnson and Johnson saying, you got to go create a crisis because I can't move these SOBs in the Congress unless you go create a crisis. And that's exactly what was happening in the 1930s. Smart people understood that in order to make profound change in the United States of America, you have to be able to do what I was taught in my first year as a trading organizer, my second week, because there was a huge strike my second week, which was a gift to me in the end, which was my leader of my union, 1199, said to me, Mac Levy, you're on the night shift. Like, you know, get some firewood, wear some cold shit. It was in the winter, a thousand nurses on fire in Rhode Island at Women Infants Hospital. My, my first week on the job, he's like, you know, you're low totem pole, you're on the night shift, right? So I'm hanging out with these nurses on strike in the middle of the night. And my union leader says to me at the time, here's the most important lesson, Mac Levy. If you 
can get 100% solidarity among the workers, and they can walk out, it's what we call creating a crisis. And if you can create a crisis for the boss, the workers are going to win every time. But if you can't create a crisis for the boss, the workers are not going to win. So mm. I, I wow. got trained wow. by a brilliant leader who actually taught yeah. me and all of us the fundamental lesson in this country about power, which is if you can build to 90% unity or greater among people who start, who come to work and have no political affiliation, and you can help build solidarity among them quickly, and they walk off together united, and you build what we call unbreakable human solidarity. That's what it takes to have a big strike, unbreakable solidarity, because the boss is going to throw racism, sexism, anti-immigrant stuff, everything at them, right? So if you, and fear, right? They're going to drive fear like no one's business. So if you can build structure and build 90 to 90% unity and unbreakable human solidarity and workers walk off the job in strategic industries, you're going to create a crisis for the capitalist class. And that's how we win. Starting in 2021 and in 2022 and in 2023, or the planet's going to burn down and people are going to die from more of an opioid crisis. Like, we, like they are coming for everything, this rich class. And we got to be ready to be smart, set priorities, be strategic, and save the damn place and build a better democracy and we got to do it with an internationalist view what if they're smarter than us they're not i mean i really don't believe they are smarter doesn't look that way no i don't really right. believe they're smarter speaking of winning they're winning oh hashtag they are winning yeah hashtag no, winning. i'm serious no i'm serious too i mean yeah. i i literally i mean i've had the pleasure of not losing almost any campaign ever and it's because i had good teachers who taught me and it's, I understand how to create a crisis. And I understand that organizing is not some magic thing. Like, you don't actually hold up the sign. It, it, it kind of upsets me. I'm going to go back to Sally. It's not Sally's fault. I like her. But, like, most of the, most of the, most of the, like, Hollywood dramas or, like, whatever passes for union popular lit in this country is just mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? So, part of why I keep writing the books and part of why I keep outlining what real organizing is and why Alex Press is reading all those books, right? And why the DSA, all these people are reading these books I'm writing is because... I am quickly trying to educate a new generation that you do not walk in and go, hey, everyone, let's, uh, this boss is a jerk. Let's have a strike. That is not. That doesn't work. That does not how about, how about this? work. Attica, Attica, Attica. No? <laughs> no, that doesn't, that doesn't work, work either. Oh, okay. No. No, you actually have to, the thing, the thing a good organizer has to do fundamentally is shut the fuck up and listen. You got to mm -hmm. listen. You got to mm -hmm. listen hard you got to learn how to identify what we call the organic leader. So there's, there are workers. There's a power structure analysis inside of every workplace, just like there's a power structure analysis outside of every workplace. Humans are engaged in power relationships. And among and between rank and file workers, there are what we call organic leaders or the natural leaders. They're there before we show up. They exist. They got nothing to do with the union organizer. They got not, we don't make those leaders. There are natural leaders in every workplace on every shift for my whole life that I was taught to identify and find as a young organizer. And we find that by doing this, we walk around, we walk around, we start talking to workers and we say, hey, you know, when you, when, when I work with a lot of nurses, so, I, you know, when I say to a nurse, I meet a nurse, she doesn't have a union yet, she wants to form a union. I say, so here's what we got to do. You and your coworkers have to figure out how to build the network of the most respected nurses in your hospital, unit by unit, shift by shift. Because when the employer war starts against you, and they start firing people on this union campaign, if you haven't recruited the most well-respected nurse leader on each shift in each department, your campaign's going to fall apart because it's only the most respected nurses who are usually not pro-union. So this is very important, which I explain in the books. 
the most respected worker leaders are the ones we most need. Not the loudmouth, not the activist, not the one who brings in cookies in the break room. None mm, of them. Yeah. We need to find that nurse, in the case of nurses, but it's true for every worker. You need to find, you need to find by asking a lot of workers, when your manager comes and tells you to do a procedure and you don't know how to do it, who's the nurse that you turn to to teach you that procedure quietly? Because mm. that's how you start to figure out the mm. network of the respected worker. It's not someone who's loud. In my experience and in our tradition, we're taught to understand that they are usually never coming to the union meetings because they have a lot to lose. They usually have the best shifts. They run a good relationship with their manager because the manager understands the same thing a good union organizer does, which is that nurse is key to keeping her whole department moving in the case of a nurse, right? Mm. They're really good workers. They lead the other workers. They teach the other workers. So how do you win them over? You win them over by listening a lot, by engaging what we call a six-step organizing conversation, which I wrote in Jacobin. In the November issue of Jacobin, in the Thanksgiving issue, I wrote a piece because I was listening to a bunch of young people yelling at people about Sanders versus this one and that one. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you got to stop yelling at people. It's, it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. So I wrote out the six-step. I wrote out how to have a conversation to win your family over during Thanksgiving. Um, and I actually wrote it out in Jacobin Magazine in long form. And I said, I modeled how I do a conversation with the worker who's skeptical of a union. Yeah. So I start by, the first thing I got to do besides be honest about who I'm and why I'm there, we're honest. The second thing is the ratio is 70-30. Like, you have to listen 70% of the time, and you, you cannot talk more than 30% of the time, because you got to get that worker engaging with right. you. And the most important thing you have to do in step two, in a six-step conversation, everything is methods and discipline in our work to win, you got to say to them, look, if you, you don't say what, what issues do you want, what issues are in your department, wrong question. You don't say what problems are here, wrong question. You have to look at the worker and say, hey, if you could change three things about the department tomorrow, what would you change? Because every worker has an answer to that. Or if you say, if you could change three things about work tomorrow, what would you change? That's, that's not an ideologically loaded question. And every worker has an answer to it. Right. So they tell you, you know, I'm doing too much overtime. They're keeping out. They're, our call pay is not very good. For nurses, it's usually we don't have enough staff in the unit. Um, and we're burning out. And we can't take care of our patients well. But you listen. You don't assume. You can never assume what a worker's issue is. You must ask them. And you must shut your mouth and listen. And then you start to agitate around it. And you say, well, why, why do you, you know, why, given how much money the CEO and the company has, why do you think they're working you so short that you can't take care of your patients? Then you start the agitation. That's step three, right? You start getting people to think about, why is my boss making it, even though this company is super rich? Why is it that they're making it so that we're working so short and we're running around and we love our patients, so we're going to run around and take care of them? But they feel like they're going home from a, a, a Vietnam, Vietnam War every day when they leave hospitals in this yeah. country right now, right? They're so overworked. Right. So, so that's then step three is you got to explain you got to explain the plan to win. We call it the plan to win. You got to connect that worker's issue, whatever she said to me. If she said to me, um, they're making us do too much on call time. That's also typical now. So on call means the nurse leaves the hospital. She wants to go have a date with her boyfriend if she's a young nurse, um, and she's got in the old days wore a pager. Now you got your cell phone. And they force you into call time. So let's say a nurse says this. That means she can't have a drink. She has to be within 30 minutes of the hospital because they can call her back at any minute because their staff in the place too short. Mm. So if a are nurse they, are says- Are they paid for that? Yeah, but shittily. I'm mm. Poorly, sorry. Yeah. Poorly. Yeah. So, so if they say they're on call, you know, that they're being put on call time too much, then you got to be able to connect from that immediate issue. You got to be able to explain to that nurse the plan to win. So- 
in step four, when we do what's called call the question, which is like you have to say to her, are you prepared to stand with your coworkers and stand up for yourself and make it so that you can actually win an end to call time? Like these nurses in the last campaign I was doing, they just wanted to end it. They wanted to end being forced on call. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's a whole, the point is like there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really serious method and discipline to how we win. Right. And you got to know the method and discipline. So when I say to people, go get a job at Amazon, go get a job in a strategic industry, go become a nurse, go become a teacher, go become a cook, a bus driver, whatever it is in a strategic sector, you got to then get trained up. You actually got to learn what it's going to take to win because it is not like walking in and putting up the damn sign. Yeah. I know this um, from the stories from my family and, and what I had to find out on my own as an adult, um, how those how that early organizing happened in the early thirties in Flint and Detroit and other places like that, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee. Um, and it's a part of our history that never gets discussed. Never. It's not in the history books for kids to read in high school. And as the pundit class on television decided to red bait Bernie Sanders and, um, focusing on the fact that he's a democratic socialist and forgetting the word democratic and just hitting the word socialist. Yeah. Or communist. I heard a few times too. No, then they switched to communist. Yeah, that's right. And there, and they, and then people who were maybe going to vote for Bernie were so afraid of Trump wailing on Bernie, calling him a communist on the stage, never letting up in the way that he wouldn't let up on Pocahontas racist. That's right. Comment. That's right. Elizabeth. That's right. And, um, and so people got afraid that, oh, no, we can't, you know. We, and I watched this and I, and I started thinking, wow, these people, these pundits, first of all, they have no clue that we wouldn't have the middle class, what's left of it, if it hadn't been for those strikes. That's right. Those strikes, because they allowed and brought about a living wage, health insurance, all the stuff my dad had, my grandmother had, working at AC spark plug uh, for General Motors. Um, we all had a better life as a result of those strikes. That's right. And and that the, what the union did. But my dad and my uncle and my grandfather, my grandmother, um, my aunts all worked in the factories in Flint. God bless them and they're, <laughs> they're great people That's but right, they did not know they did not know how to organize a union mm-hmm. so what happened was is that hundreds hundreds of new yorkers the story just has never been told mm-hmm. new york jews yeah no, that's right new york jewish communists and it was such a lesson in how wow when we all when we work together like this and 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 how people see each other and, and uh, treat each other I had a joke in my head because because in saying your name, Jane. Uh, I'm the Irish Jew from New York. I'm not the Goyim, by Ma- the way. Macalevy. Right, because I'm because I'm raised by Jews. Is that it? Yeah. No, no, no yes. that's a joke. No, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. I'm not the Goyim that way. No, that's what I mean. It's like I'm I. Um, Wait, so, my father, my father. So what is this like a Scottish or Irish? My father remarried. My mom dies when I'm a baby, yeah. and my father remarries, and he marries okay. a teacher union leader. Yeah, because who was endorsing his campaigns, yeah. right? So anyway, then I'm raised by a Jew under all of the traditions of the Jewish faith, even though I'm like 
you know, I present very blonde. People have no idea mm. that I can rap in Yiddish and rap down, you know, the high holidays right. and first Seder and second Seder. I'm looking forward to it's coming up soon. I was just playing it with my brother last night. So, you know, and talk about the story of liberation, right? Like, a, like I love uh, Passover because right. I think the story of liberation um, from slavery is an extraordinarily great holiday, frankly. Right. And those of us who've spent our entire adult life winning campaigns, which I have had the pleasure of doing in very hard fights, learned the tradition from the people in the 1930s. I'm exactly three generations from them. I can tell you exactly who trained my leader and who he was trained by. Wow. Like those of us who can do this, we call it the tribe. We're in a tribe. It's like talking Jew talk, but it's actually a union organizer talk. And a bunch of us are also Jews, but not all of us. But like we, we talk about ourselves as a tribe because we come from a certain training lineage and we're still winning. If you look around the trade union movement today, you hear a lot of, oh, we can't win, labor law's broken, got to change it. Oh, stop and get to work, right? Like some of us are still winning and we've won the whole time. And we've won because we're super serious about method and discipline. Look, I don't, <laughs> I've lived in hotels most of my adult life. Like I, people are like single, childless, whatever. Like I am addicted to this work. I am here to do this work. And there is a way to do it. And you can become a soldier and you can win. We wake up in 2021, we got to strike the shit out of this country and win. So the history is not buried and it's, and it's related to all these books by the way because it's in there right right well i really appreciate your no fucking around uh attitude here that's what we need right now that's right you can't fuck around and you can't fuck around when the boss is starting to bear down on workers in a campaign either so step four is you've called the question you frame the hard choice you let the worker know look you got to stand up or you're never gonna you're never gonna not you're never going to be able to get off call pay unless you and your coworkers decide to stand up and fight your employer. And we're going to help you figure out how to do that. But you yourself are going to have to do it, right? It's a hard conversation. There's nothing easy about a tough union conversation. It's a hard conversation. And you got to explain to workers how it's going to work and what they themselves have to do. Because we can't, you know, they got to do it in large numbers. And it's going to be risk. And you got to talk about the risk in it. And you got to give them what's called a thoughtful plan to win. So step five Step six is next steps, follow up. You got to give them an assignment, follow up with them, make sure they're doing it. Step five is crucial. It's called inoculation. What inoculation means in a six-step union conversation is that we have to say to the worker what the boss is going to say. It's called giving them the poison before the boss does. You got to lay out what the boss is going to say as soon as the union campaign surfaces so that they hear it first and you have to process with them why the employer is going to say that they're going to fire you, close the hospital, move your job, lay you off, and everything else they're going to tell you, what, that the union dues cost too much, that, that you're going to go to union jail if you don't go on the picket line. Like, there's a whole series of things that every employer says. And we got to say them to the worker first. So we do that after they've committed, they've signed the union card. And then we say, and here's, again, the effective way to do it is we do this. We ask a question. We say, so what do you think that your manager is going to do when she realizes that you've signed the union membership card? So the smart organizers do it by asking. Remember I told you it's we're asking questions. We're not telling them things. And we want to let the worker think out loud about that. And then we're going to listen to what their fear is. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to lose my vacation this summer. I have a good one planned. Like, because that all happens. They start canceling the vacations on them and when the union button goes on. So, so we let them walk through the phases of what we call the boss fight. And then we do inoculation. We say, so why do you think your manager is going to do that? So in the Bernie campaign, which I talk about in that article, and like, what do you think is going to happen? What, what are they going to say about Bernie? And why are they going to say it? They're going to say he's a communist, he's a socialist. They're going to say he's mean. They're going to say all these dumbass things about him. Now, mm-hmm. why do you think they're going to say that? And you have to get into a conversation. So inoculation is a crucial part of a good, effective organizing conversation. And every time what happens is the workers come back 
in a, in a union fight and with Bernie, there's a relevant, exact relevance. The worker, and as soon as the boss, as soon as the campaign surfaces and the boss puts out the first flyer, the union's going to put you in union jail. You're not going to make any decisions. You're going to be forced on strike. Your dues are going to be huge. I mean, this shit is right out of a cookie cutter book that they have called the Union Buster Manual. So the workers call us up and they go, Jane, holy, they just said that. And then they also realize, and we say, right, they're like, how'd you know the boss was going to say that? And we say, because it's in their training manual on how to defeat you. So what are your, what are your final words of advice for people who are going to be voting in the next week or two? We got to get ready to have massive strikes, legal and illegal, starting in 2021 in this country, to force a reckoning with the power structure and create a crisis. The new book is... A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. And if people want to learn how to do this shit, they seriously just need to read that book, because it ain't about going out there and lollygagging. It's about fucking winning. Well, from your lips to uh, the ears of our national electorate, um, thank you very much for being on my podcast. uh, this has been very enlightening, I hope, for people listening. Uh, all of you who have the fight in you, now is the time to stand up. Uh, don't wait. Things are happening on an hourly basis uh, as we speak. So uh, get involved. Uh, don't give up. Don't despair. That's their the, the boss's favorite weapon is your fear and your despair. It's called futility. Right. It's a strategy on their part. Don't, don't let futility set in. Get up and go. Too many people have been feeling futility in this That's last right. week. That's right, and we're not going to win that and way. It's a, no, it's a killer. No. It's an absolute killer. No, and, um, and the planet's burning, so get off your ass and get campaigning. There you go. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listened to Rumble here on uh, this episode. And um, we'll be back again, um, most likely, uh, tomorrow. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Michael.